Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Lennage, and this is Skylines, the Cinematric Podcast. Something we, we've kind of touched on in this podcast occasionally is the role culture plays in cities, and particularly in uh, economic development. It's obviously been a huge factor in the regeneration of certain cities. When Liverpool was European capital of culture, that, that's widely seen as having revived the city. I think the other famous example is probably the Spanish city of, of Bilbao, where having the Guggenheim open a, a rather fine gallery of a massive dog made of flowers outside has been has been excellent for that particular city. But we've kind of never really delved into that in huge amounts of depth. So, so that's what we're going to do today. And to do that, I'm joined by someone who's been looking into this exact subject. Do you want to tell me who you are? Sure. I'm Carolina Saludas. I am the co-chair of the Arts and Culture Network at the Young Fabians, very long-winded title, from the Fabian Society. So we are a progressive think tank and we look into policy development, policy lobbying, research publication, that kind of thing. Okay. And just just because someone was asking me this yesterday, how young are the Young Fabians? Not very young. (laughs) the answer it's for under 31s which make us on the closer edge of 31 feel good about ourselves that's almost reassuring like it's don't get me wrong still not still not young enough to be a young fabian but it's not it's not as far out of reach as i as i imagined it would be so there's there's something absolutely (laughs) okay so first question we're looking at culture lab regeneration Mm -hmm. what does that mean so there are a lot of definitions out there so to give a very brief outline there have been many studies on what culture means, what regeneration means, and then obviously what culture-led regeneration means. So in terms of regeneration as a whole, it's been a bit of a catch-all term since the 80s to mean a use of public land, sometimes mixed with private land, to do something better for a community and for the aesthetic of a city. So it has those two elements to it. And then culture, it can mean a lot of things, and it really depends on what report and what organisation is talking to you about it. So it could be design of a city, it could be architecture, it could be art festivals, it could be really small community-led projects about arts education. So it encompasses a lot of things, and it really depends 
who is paying <laughs> as to what they cover. And in terms of culture-led regeneration itself, again, it has those two elements. It has the aesthetic element, so the, for example, the Bilbao example that you talked about, Newcastle, Liverpool, Hull, there's, there's many in the UK that we can recognise as having been culturally regenerated for the museums, the public plazas, etc. And then there's the kind of deeper, more difficult, social, urban quality of life element to it. So how do you empower communities? How do you integrate communities? A lot of cultural regeneration has been used as a bit of a tool to talk about migration, for example, to talk about much more difficult subjects, economic regeneration of a, of a region, for example. So it can mean a lot of things, but broadly it has both the, the aesthetic what it looks like and then what it's actually doing for a community. Okay, I kind of started in economics. Is that too narrow an idea of what? Like, can you have regeneration that isn't about a city getting richer, basically? I think the investment part of it is so fundamental to being able to do stuff that in almost every research paper I've read, it features broadly. But what is also mentioned again and again is that you can't really solve cultural problems you can't use culture as a tool for regeneration if you don't have leadership and if you don't have coordination so for example there was a really interesting study by the cultural cities research network some years ago looking at cities that had bid for the city of culture program and they discovered that just by bidding just by getting together and working out a plan for regeneration to bid for this for this program they were already making progress in their cultural strategy right so just the the getting together and organizing was already really helpful now the biggest impediment to then being able to produce a result to have an impact was the fact that they found it really hard to coordinate with other national and regional organizations in order to implement these plans right so the money is really important but if you can't coordinate between really, really wide, different areas, then it's it's almost impossible to, to actually do. Mm. Now, the point about how you don't even need to actually necessarily win one of these festivals, or whatever it is, mm. uh, win the right to host them, one of these festivals, is an interesting one. Because a couple of years ago, I was mm. up in Paisley, which is a oh, town in, yeah. in Scotland, in the western suburbs of Glasgow, which is effectively a part of Greater Glasgow. <laughs> okay. And everyone I was speaking to there about their bid to be UK, uh, culture, mm-hmm. was talking about how even, you know, just the act of, of putting together a bid had kind of made them rethink the use of public space and what assets they had. That's amazing. And, you know, just like, it kind of forced all these people to get around the table, I think, was the... Uh, absolutely. And one thing that I am finding very surprising in my role in the Young Fabians is that culture is both incredibly important, it cuts across almost every single policy area, a little bit like environmental policy, you know, it kind of touches everything. But it's because it's very wide, it's almost always not thought about properly within a project. It seems to be a happy afterthought, a happy after effect outside of the very clear boundaries of, you know, DCMS and Arts Council England. So it is bizarre that, particularly for local governments, the moment there is some thought put into culture, there's immediately an advantage. I think it's it's probably low-hanging fruit. <laughs> mm. Also, it's an area that's borne the brunt of austerity, right? It's not, you know, at a point where council budgets are being cut by 20, 30, 40%. Yeah. Your your culture budget is one of the first things to go because you've got, you've got to stop old people from starving and kids being <laughs> abused. 
least at the most basic level that is what we're talking about we're getting into the cheery part of the podcast (laughs) or or like to to be slightly less depressing about it like people are going to complain if the bins don't get emptied a long Mm. time before they're going to complain if the performing arts festival Uh, absolutely one of the things that's really hard about cultural regeneration is that it's inherently long term and things are inherently long term and difficult to quantify are really both not sexy and hard to sell and hard to prove after the fact. So one of the things that one of the studies has found is that the lack of local government funding for culture, I mean, in general, which has led to lower investment in culture, has then forced local governments to seek private partnerships in order to provide those cultural events and that provision. The problem is only places that have got the people and the resources and maybe the the interesting you know national heritage sites and so on already within their borders are able to have that to have those programs so in the end you end up with kind of cultural inequality between regions that can't really afford and don't have the bandwidth at the time to think about Mm. culture and then the ones that do that probably already did before and now just get a bit nicer cut of the pie if that makes sense yeah and so there is this thing called the Bilbao effect, right? Which is, you know, Bilbao is kind of the, the classic example of this as a city that's you know, a post-industrial city mm. in northern Spain has turned into a massive tourism destination, largely because of, like, although the Guggenheim is only one gallery, it kind of woke people up to the fact that this is actually a really cool place, like there's loads going for it. Great food. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's just it's an absolutely magnificent place. Like I went there yeah. a couple of years ago and, you know, you, the drive in from the airport you kind of mm. go into a tunnel under a mountain yeah and you come out and the city is just laid out below you in this valley yeah. and it's just you know physically it's this incredible place and in a different way like you know cultural regeneration has done great things for, for liverpool mm. again there's a city with a lot going for it it's got beautiful architecture yeah. like it's got this amazing cultural history these are not necessarily things you can just transfer to anywhere else So, like, to what extent do you need to kind of be in quite a good position for this to work in the first place? So, there's a really interesting case. Now, I can't remember who did this research. Phone in. (laughs) Sorry, not phone in. Email us if you you can remember. They did a long time series piece of research on Olympic Games and Olympic Games bids and then the after effect on cities that had successfully bid and, and hosted the Olympics. One thing that they found, which was really quite sad is that the cities that have done the best out of the Olympics, London being one of them, Tokyo is looks likely to make to do really well out of it, is that they already have the infrastructure in place in order to allocate the resources, make the most of them, utilize the spaces afterwards. So a city like Athens, which was about to get into the worst recession it had ever seen, wasn't able to manage its resources very well. And, and actually the city hasn't done very well out of it. It's mm. in a whole of debt and if you go to Athens it's really sad because the Olympic grounds are basically abandoned correct me if I'm wrong I think some parts are now being used but if you go it's just largely like yeah. beautiful white buildings yeah, are completely unused yeah, there are amazing photo stories I think in the run up to London 2012 looking at what happened to the Athens sites yeah. just abandoned but yeah. I think also geography is a factor there like one of the reasons mm. the London Olympics kind of worked in terms of regenerating a chunk of the city is it Mm. was just this kind of hole in east london between populated areas and if you could find an excuse to clean it up that area was always going to be fine whereas as i understand it what they did in athens was they built this kind of olympic park on the edge of town miles from anywhere yeah that's not in a place where where it's going to naturally be useful in the same way yeah there's just like one tube line that connects it 
either you go there to see this thing. But there was no bigger plan in place. There was no LLDC like Stratford has, right? So the Olympics now has a program uniquely dedicated to community links in Stratford to use the the facilities that, that were left behind after the Olympics. None of that was really able to be done, neither in Athens, South Africa, Brazil. Like there are many examples from big sporting events that just haven't really had the time or the money or the or the bandwidth in, in, in local government to, to look into it. So ironically, the places that do really well are places that were already a little bit underrated. So Barcelona is always hailed as that example of city that did so well. But Barcelona was already a very industrial place. And in the same way as London, it had an area that it really needed to regenerate. They used the plan very effectively with really good urban design and with really strong community links. And they've carried doing that for the next, you know, 25 to 30 years. So in a sense, it's kind of unsurprising in the same way that for London, it's kind of unsurprising that they did well because we have a very long tradition of, well, we've hosted Olympic Games before. So we collectively kind of know how to do it. So yeah, ironically, the, the big, big sporting events, they benefit the ones that are already doing it really well. Well, the incredible thing about Barcelona's 92 Olympics is before them, despite it being the largest city on the shores of the Mediterranean, mm. it didn't really have a beach. Like, it just no, totally ignored its waterfront. It was just this kind of industrial area. Yeah. And and the Olympics kind of forced the city to kind of sort it out. And now it's, you know, one of the most popular tourism destinations in Europe. It's so pretty. It's, yeah. I, I can't even... My sister lives in Barcelona, and I just... I'm so jealous of her. She has, she has a great life. But so my my mom grew up in in Barcelona, and she just she still marvels. Like she will go through a neighborhood, she'll be like, "This used to be a dive. Like no one would come here, and now it's this beautiful regenerator area." And I think it's because they have taken that model of picking an area that needs regeneration and linking it across with loads of different organizations. So I think that is what the places that have done it really well always have. I think Berlin's, for example, doing some really interesting stuff. So they shut down Tempelhof Airport and now they're rejigging it and, you know, rebuilding it. It also really helps if your land is worth a lot of money, right? So Stratford had the potential to be really expensive flats really quickly. Berlin's property market's going through the roof. Barcelona was the same. Bilbao was the same. So yeah, looking at the economics of what fuels urban regeneration is also quite an interesting thing. One that a lot of cultural organisations don't like to think about very much. <laughs> but... Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, so you know the drill by now. I am here at the uh, Centre for Cities fine offices in the London Bridge, District of London, which is a very originally named district, which isn't even on a bridge. I don't know why I asked you this ridiculous city. But today we are privileged because we actually have, we have the boss. We have Andrew Carter with us for a change. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm very good. I'm very good. Sun is shining. It's beautiful out. You've, uh, I assume you've locked Paul Swinney in a cupboard for the duration. We have. He's had far too much exposure. He's getting very excited. He's getting, so he's getting to, above himself, isn't he? Indeed. Yeah. We have to bring him down a peg or two. So he's in the cupboard and if with good behaviour, he'll be out shortly. Excellent. I should say we're recording this a couple of weeks in advance of publication. It's 1st of July 4th as we speak, so it's possible we're going to make some assumptions about the Conservative leadership race that do not hold true. But at time of recording, it looks fairly likely that Boris Johnson is going to be the next Prime Minister, with a slim chance it might be Jeremy Hunt. Mm. Of course, there's also a slim chance the next Tory leader is not the next Prime Minister, but we'll put that to one side for now. Uh, We are going to talk about what the next Prime Minister can do for Britain's cities and the people who live within them, which is an issue you've been given quite a lot of thought to, isn't it, Andrew? We have. We've been thinking about it. Interestingly, you know, he he will be, if it's Johnson, as you say, you know, he will be a former mayor, which is much more of a kind of usual experience in other countries, but the first time here where a former mayor could well be the next Prime Minister. So it'll be interesting to see, in fact, in in a kind of more general sense, as to how much of what he was espousing while he was the mayor of London follows him to to number 10 question, you know, the answer to which we will find out. So the obvious first question here is, um, what do we think Boris Johnson was espousing when he was mayor of London? Because as someone who wrote a lot about the Johnson mayoralty... (laughs) I'm not entirely sure if I'm honest with you. Was he, for, well, I, he seemed to like, he, he had a thing about bridges. He likes sort of the big physical monuments to his achievements in life. He didn't seem that sort of infused about any particular aspect of policy. Well, that, that's, that's probably fair. Although I think he was, you know, he was an advocate for London and he was an advocate for cities. So I think that's the first thing that we would hope follows him through, a kind of recognition of the significance of the cities and, you know, London, but cities more generally within the national situation. So, you know, on the economy, you know, they are the hubs, etc. And so I think that's the first thing that we would hope if he becomes prime minister, he takes with him into number 10 is a recognition of where a lot of growth happens and the need to get more of our cities, actually more of our cities outside of London and the Great Southeast performing better than they currently are. So that would be the first thing that I would be really hoping that he takes with him. The second thing I think we would definitely want him to be doing and and addressing again from his time there is to address and reverse some of the stringent reductions in money that have gone into our, into local government in general, you know, but urban local government in particular. So we'd want to see him think about how you know, the funding that goes into local government and urban local government in particular gets reversed either through the immediate emergency budget that he's been talking about or if and when we have it, the spending review, which will either be a one year or maybe will continue to be a three year, but I think probably one year. Okay, well, let's take those in reverse order. On the, on the spending thing, 
There are already signs that the both candidates for the Tory leadership have located the magic money tree and are preparing to harvest quite enthusiastically, <laughs> which, to be fair, does make a certain amount of sense in that austerity was always meant to be a reasonably like, contained thing in you know, nine years after, after the Tories re-entered government. I don't think anyone expected that we'd still be sort of talking about shrinking the state. No. So that's not a crazy idea, and it's also probably quite popular. On the other point, though... I'm not sold on the idea that he really sort of represents urban Britain in a number of ways. I mean, firstly, his constituency is, what's it, Uxbridge? Uxbridge. South Ryslip? Or, yeah. Which is... Good part of West London, you know, close to the airport. Zone 6, it's right on the edge of London. Yeah. It is an area that just about voted leave, I believe. Or, yeah. or Hillingdon, the borough it's in as a whole, voted leave, certainly. So it is one of those kind of like outer London suburbs that in some ways is not that London-y. But more to the point, like, he has kind of shifted position quite a lot. On a lot. Like, there was the... Firstly, the fact that he came out for leaving the European Union at all, which mm-hmm. is very much not the position of London as a whole. Indeed not. And secondly, there was the, the line he used, which I think went, fuck business. Yes. Um, which is not really in line with, with either sort of historic Tory party strategy or with his with his own position as mayor of London. So, I mean, can we necessarily read across from the fact that he was a mayor to think he cares about the cities? Is it at all possible that he mostly cares about Boris? It's possible, whether it's probable. You know, I think you're right. But, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a believer, I think, in the discipline of power. And that once he's in, if he's in government, then particularly, you know, as you look at the economy... You know, worries today, uh, worries now around are we slipping towards a kind of mild recession even before October the 31st, but certainly concerns around stagnant wages, low productivity, you know, in a sense, those issues have not gone away and they will be very, very relevant and pertinent for the new prime minister. If you want to spend more money, you've got to raise it. And one of the ways to raise it is to grow the overall size of the economy. And so thinking about how that, you know, the magic money tree and the proceedings proceeds from it get allocated into infrastructure, into skills, into innovation, much of which is urban, but not all of it. And really kind of thinking about how we get the economy function more effectively than it is. I think that is and will be uh, an issue that he'll need to grapple with. So the discipline of that gives me some confidence how much is debatable, that he will take some of what he thought about and advocated for when he was mayor into number 10. The second thing is, and go back to your first previous point, my point about funding, you know, he was the mayor who brought back together, as it were, the London Finance Commission that was originally set up and, and uh, reported under Livingston. He then brought it back under Tony Travers to look again at the devolution, the fiscal responsibilities, the fiscal autonomy that he wanted London to have in order to, you know, to fund its own development over a period. You know, he did that. He was a pretty bold advocate for the the findings of that. So hopefully, you know, again, when he gets to number 10, he reminds himself of that of that document and then begins to, to re-energize the devolution debate, which has kind of gone moribund, I suppose, over the last couple of years. Has he shown any particular interest in devolution, do you think? I mean, um, Well, he did when um, he was um, on the mayor, didn't he? he yeah. And he kind of talks about, quite, you know, but, but is that not a subset it. of him showing an interest in his own power and prospects? Well, you know, so, I mean, I, motivations vary. I mean, I, you know, ultimately, 
I'm less worried about his motivation, I suppose. I'm more worried about the outcomes of it. If you know, if his motivation is is his own self-aggrandizement, then fine. If he gives more devolution to cities as a way mm. to do that and be seen as you know the great dev- you know devolving prime minister, then you know that will be a good outcome. I mean, I do sometimes worry a little that like, I love you guys, I love your policy agenda, but I do sometimes feel it's a bit like talking to a vicar. <laughs> well, like whatever you, whatever you're talking to, like the lesson turns out to be Jesus. Well, whatever the topic of conversation, like the lesson is is the importance of fiscal devolution. But I, I, I guess what I'm sort of, like I've wondered for a while if actually there will be at some point we'll get to a point where there is an incentive on a prime minister or a chancellor to just as George Osborne famously devolve the axe to devolve the tax rises, because at some point we are going to need more money to fund local government, because otherwise stuff is going to fall over. If the national government wants deniability around that, does it make sense for them to actually start devolving some fiscal powers so that like, it's local government that gets in trouble for raising, raising taxes? What Always a better place to make the arguments as to why the taxes need to be raised. You know, I think there is good evidence, not only from here, you know, in small ways. Look at look at the evolution that we had around business improvement districts. You know, people said, oh, asking businesses to, to pay an extra penny in the pound for services that they regard to be, you know, public services, extra street cleaning, extra community safety stuff, that will never wash. Actually proven to be completely the reverse. Businesses across the country in prosperous places and indeed in less prosperous places have introduced bids because of the connection between the money raised and what it gets spent on. And I think when you look at kind of local tax raising, whether it may be, you know, hotel taxes in Edinburgh or Birmingham or, or something like that, or, or kind of extra pennies in the pound to, you know, to redevelop certain areas or to improve transport infrastructure. I think the arguments there and the evidence there seems to say that, you know, we have, that's a better way to go. I'm not saying, you know, that's the only thing we should be thinking about, but I do feel more confident that, you know, in that sort of scenario, the connection between money raised and money spent in a, in a kind of localised sense actually will empower places and indeed uh, empower the citizens of those places to be more mindful, more engaged in those sorts of issues. So I, I'm kind of mildly optimistic on, uh, on those things. I think people often become you know, reluctant on tax increases because it's like, well, where, you know, where does this go? Mm-hmm. It kind of disappears into the, you know, into the ether and uh, it never quite returns. What am I paying my taxes for? Well, we know that you know, at the local level, people can see very clearly or could see more clearly what they, you know, what their monies will be, um, you know, will be spent on. We should uh, at least glance at uh, Jeremy Hunt. There are technically two candidates in the race. Jeremy Hunt does, does exist. Do you have any sort of strong impulses about where he might stand on some of these issues, whether he is, is thinking about urban policy at all? I have a m- much less of a sense as to him, although interestingly, he has come up I think he came out a couple of days ago, so you know, very beginnings of July, making some warm noises about the Northern Powerhouse and the kind of reinvigoration of I think. So I think he's aware of these sorts of issues. I don't think it's it's his natural terrain, but interestingly, you know, he was the health minister, you know, and he has said something again recently around you know the issues around social care, which do play out mm. and are very significant for places uh, across the country. You know, many, many local authorities now spending more than 50% of their budgets on social care. If funding remained static, demand, you know, continues to increase. So in some respects, you know, questions and issues like that 
will also have quite large effects on places up and down the country. And indeed, you know, asks the question about what our local authorities uh, are for outside of, you know, delivering social uh, care, whether it's adult or children. So I think, you know, he may not be thinking directly about urban policy, but some of the issues he's beginning to talk about very directly influence urban areas. Well, it's uh, a time of, of great change in British politics. Like we sort of, it's sort of weird because in some ways we, we know exactly where we're going to be in a couple of months' time. And in some ways everything kind of feels it's, it's entirely open. We can probably make a good guess as to who's going to be prime minister and that we still won't have a Brexit policy to speak of. But on the other hand, it does kind of feel like a lot of these issues are going to start coming to a head soon, and that will force that will force change that perhaps wouldn't have been forthcoming otherwise. Absolutely. You know, in a sense, if you think about, in a sense, when Theresa May became Prime Minister, yes, Brexit was the issue that she was obviously going to need to address, uh, but she also then said she would address a bunch of other issues. In reality, Brexit has, has consumed her premiership and is un- obviously unresolved by the time she finishes. The question will be whether the new prime minister allows or enables or encourages a same process because Brexit will need to be dealt with and it's the big, you know, it's the biggest issue. It's the extent to which um, the prime minister, whether it's Johnson or Hunt, is also then being prepared to be proactive on a whole range of domestic mm. policy agendas, whether it's issues to do with skills or education or transport or housing and social care, for example, all of those need dealing with. And I don't think, you know, another three years or another, you know, two years of doing very little on the domestic agenda is going to be feasible. Well, as uh, someone who writes and podcasts a lot about public policy, I think we can say these are exciting times. They are. They are. Very true. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. Okay, so we've talked about some success stories. Let's go to the other end of the scale. Where hasn't this worked and why? So I'm not going to point fingers because I'm nice. All cities are great. However. (laughs) Oh, come on. Getting getting letters is the fun part. Uh, Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the famous ones that haven't really worked, again, we talked about Athens, an unfortunate case. Montreal in 68 wasn't a great host of Olympic Games, unfortunately. Rio, for example, held the World Cup and another massive sporting event that's now... The Olympics. The, yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. And all within a couple of years of each other. Now, they knew that this was a, a very ambitious project, but I don't think, and the consensus is they didn't really manage to, don't even touch the surface of the problems that the city has. And the country has, and you could argue that they could have spent the money in other things. Now, one really interesting piece of research regarding what constitutes success for regeneration projects is the approach to it. So, again, not to point fingers, but New Labour had a very kind of homogenous, centralised, close strategy on culture-led regeneration. They figured out that they could use culture as a tool, as a direct outcome-led tool for regeneration, which is really great. But sometimes it came out in projects that wouldn't really be that important for the community or wouldn't be that relevant or they just wouldn't really talk to the different communities in a place. So they, they kind of lacked that diversity. So if you remember late 90s, early noughties, all of those kind of samey, kind of hygienic-looking plazas all around Europe that that came out, you know, I'm thinking of like the Reichstag development. Mm-hmm. They 
all looked great, but you could have taken the pictures and put them in different places and they would have all looked the same. You would have known which one was which. There's a really nice quote from Phil Redwood, who is very big in this area, talking about how he spoke to, to this, this kid in this area and they were talking about sports facilities. And the kid was like, I don't understand. You guys spend 30 million developing this big sports centre. But before we had 20 not great looking football pitches, but now we have one and an Olympic swimming pool, which we don't need. And now it's a very glitzy football pitch, but you have to pay for it. So somebody should have come and asked us what we needed. So that's kind of an example of when it doesn't work. So it's the lesson here that it sort of needs to be done with the community rather than to the community. Exactly. The problem, of course, is that when it comes to it, it's really hard to actually do, right? So you will have, for example, the Local Government Association commissioned a report last year that came out this year, which was really good, but pointed to the practicalities of doing something like this. When you haven't even put together a bid, how do you get together and do big, expensive consultations? You know, that you want to have a, a managed approach right so you kind of want to keep your your cards close to your your chest and also it's really hard to entice people when the thing hasn't been won so their approach is well we will engage the community once the bid has been won and then we'll make it how we want to make it but sometimes a lot of things have already been decided by the time you get to that and so people feel like well you know you can consult us but you've already planned the big sporting center and whatever and this big festival that nobody needed (laughs) We're talking a lot about sport. What about kind of other forms of, of culture? Like, does, does that work differently or is it the same problem? Same problem. So you will have big things that we talked about. So big architecture projects, big urban design projects, which are slightly different but kind of the same. So if you say take a, a beautiful a square that is not looking very nice and you kind of redo the whole strategy around it, landscape it, and all that sort of stuff. So that counts also as cultural re- regeneration because it creates a space for culture and interaction there's things like festivals for example the london borough of culture project has been very good with that so walthamstow is now hosting festivals street parties you know opening up and losing up the the license licenses for example so there's a lot that can be done locally that is much more ingrained in in the community right much more community-led there are big sculpture projects like Anthony Gormley's. There can even be things like film documentary projects. So it can really span quite a lot of things. And there's a lot on arts education as well. So how do you teach communities about their own history, their own past, and and reinforce a sense of place and togetherness? So something we haven't really talked about is, you know, where does EU money fit into all this? Because, you know, the EU has historically been a great funder of this sort of project. Mm. Although, like, nothing is certain in British politics these days. There is a fair chance the EU is not going to continue being a big funder of this stuff in a British context. How big a problem is that? So currently the EU has set out through the European Commission, a strategic plan between 2019 and 2024, where they have highlighted the key areas of policy development, one of which is culture, because they have figured out that actually social cohesion is really important at a time when that's very much put at doubt. That has informed a lot of things about where money is going to be funneled. But even beyond that, the European Union has been very good particularly with the UK, in spite of what many politicians will say, at funding development. So there's this thing which some of you will have heard of called the European Regional Development Plan, which a lot of UK cities 
in fact most UK cities have benefited from, which is meant to help develop parts of different countries. So, for example, in the UK, Cornwall has received a lot of money for this kind of development. Wales has received a lot of, a lot of funding for this kind of development. And to them, there are kind of four legs to this. There's the environmental stuff, which is really important, really key. There's the spatial strategy, so what gets put into what, right? So, And that, that has a lot to do with quality of life. You know, so many spaces need to be for community centres, so many spaces need to be for schools, so on and so forth. They will try to have a say in that or inform a say in that. There's the aesthetic, so through the use of architects that they use for, for various programs which inform how cities look. And then, of course, there's the economic part of it, which is just direct funding of organisations. So they, they have a big say and without sounding political, not having that will have a very direct mm. impact on how people live their lives here. It is not obvious to me, given the history of British governments, particularly Tory-led British governments, that that places like Cornwall or rural Wales are going to see this funding replaced from national government. It just doesn't really seem to me like the sort of thing that no. the government is going to do. <laughs> no, they again, they favour private-public partnerships, keeping the government's particular local government, small and, to their mind, nimble. But, of course, as we said before, what that means is regional inequality. It means some cities will get loads of cash because they will be able to attract loads of cash, think southeast of England, London, of course, maybe Edinburgh, maybe Glasgow. And then the rest of the places that will struggle will just not be able to attract funding. And if they don't, they just won't have the public help that they are currently getting. So is cultural every generation going to be a thing that sort of happened for a period in British politics mm. that we're maybe now sort of seeing winding down? Maybe this isn't going to be a huge thing in future. So there's a glimmer of hope, which is that many organisations do this. So you've got your, as we mentioned, the uh, Local Government Association, which has, again, different parties going into it. You've got DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, which sets up big kind of nationwide strategies. You've got the Arts Council England. And all of these function relatively independent. They try to coordinate between each other, but they try to cover different areas from the very specific to the very global. So there's hope that if one party is in government they won't be able to completely defund the arts but unfortunately the other way around also also works if you have suddenly a very progressive very pro-culture government it might not suddenly mean that a lot of money is going to be put into a into culture oh well a glimmer of hope is is <laughs> you know still a nice note to end on so we'll leave it there carolina thank you very much thank you been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.